Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 16, A World Steeped in Violence. Hey guys, one more thing. Hey, this summer, when you're being inundated with all this American Bicentennial Fourth of July brouhaha, don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. Well, welcome to History Against the Grain. What's on your mind, Chris? You know, I have so much on my mind these days, uh, Josh, that I'm, I'm just basically unable to think clearly at all i'm i'm sorry to say no it's a very disorganized brain that i I have right now uh (laughs) jumping from subject to subject as i try to sleep at night but uh i it's it's not good for for living and sleeping and and stuff but it's it's good for a podcast i think yeah i know it we're going to call it creative confusion today and just trust our listeners to you know have empathy yeah, I, I was saying to you earlier that I feel like I'm overprepared and underorganized for this this week's episode. So we'll we'll see how this goes. <laughs> I love that clip, by the way, from Dazed and Confused. Yeah, don't forget why we're celebrating the fourth. I guess that gives us something of a of a lens now, uh, given that we've been treated to some rather you know extraordinary understandings of American society thanks to the Fourth of July speeches we've heard. Oh boy! I mean, this this holiday is you know in the best of times. It's it's something I'm ambiguous about at the very least. You know, you can go through the motions and you know eat your burgers off the grill and light your fireworks, and then you start thinking about what's going on and what we're celebrating, and you know maybe it takes some some shine off it. And then this year was just like, I just want to make it through this day. I don't mm-hmm. want to think about what this actually means and how horrific it seems to celebrate this this right now. It almost felt like a day of mourning for me mm-hmm. this time in a way that. You know, maybe it always should. I don't know, but uh, but this year it particularly felt like um, an extremely. It was a sad. I would say it was a, it was a sad day. We watched Do the Right Thing. That was our way of of celebrating. I guess if you haven't seen it, watch it. If you have seen it, man, it holds up so Classic well. Classic so. Spike Lee fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think we should listen to our dogs. Honestly, uh, dogs have been telling us for years they don't like Fourth of July. Right. Our theme today: a uh, world steeped in violence. Is it any uh, ironic wonder that we celebrate the 4th of July with a kind of, um, what, would, what would we call it, a, a ritual reenactment of violence with fireworks? and A mock battle? A mock battle uh, with explosions and gunpowder. And look, you know, if on, as if on cue, the president goes to the Black Hills of South Dakota. You know, I don't know if you've been there, Josh. It's a sublime landscape. You know, and in a, a kind of, you know, endless northern plains, you come along the, the Black Hills or, uh, you know, these alpine, you know, granite, pine-studded vistas and, you know, extraordinary. And, and of course, it was there that the U.S. government decided to build its monument ultimately to white supremacy that we call Mount Rushmore, the Fab Four, you know, not, not John, Paul, George, and Ringo, although I know Ringo turned 80 today and we like to mention Ring, Ringo when we can, right? Yeah, that's got to be, I mean, he might be mentioned more than any single historical figure in the in the podcast, actually. <laughs> but the fab four we're talking about here, George, Tom, Abe, and Teddy, still sounds like a boy band, doesn't it, kind of? Teddy always is the one that 
I'm like, really? Teddy, Teddy made it? I guess just because he happened to be alive at that moment, right? It seemed a bit random, right? Uh, I was I was thinking maybe, uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge, but no, Teddy. Um, you know, really a national monument, 100% white and male and 50% white male and slave owning is that fab for at Mount Rushmore. And that's where our, our president, um, Trump, decided to make his, his speech right there in that sacred land of uh, the native people uh, where a, a monument to white supremacy uh, was built. And uh, he didn't disappoint, did he? He went full board. And it's almost impressive how somebody can be so ignorant of history and then so pointed in doing the exactly wrong uh, wrong thing, or I guess the right thing to anger the people he wants to anger, <laughs> right? Like yeah. he knows exactly where to go. Like the fact that they were, he was going to go give his speech in Tulsa on Juneteenth. It just the, the the way they want to rile up the people they want to rile up by using these very pointed kind of historical moments to to do it is it's it's very precise for for uh, a president who probably has never read a book. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I've never gotten the sense that he's he's you know was able to sit down with you know requisite patience to page turn through an entire volume of something. Um, he's he's more into. Uh, sort of hot takes and tweets and, and you know, uh, history on the cheap. And the, the particular speech, as you know, uh, that he gave uh, first at Mount Rushmore and then the next day in Washington on the 4th has been dubbed the American carnage formula for, from a phrase he used back in his inaugural address, which allows him to frame, you know, for what we call his base, you know, um, what he says are the angry mobs and the wave of violent crime uh, that they need to be afraid of, you know, uh, presuming that they being white, uh, mostly non-urban uh, people. And he said in that speech, I mean, it's worth uh, quoting, I suppose, although you have to forgive me for repeating these words. We are now in the process of defeating the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who in many instances have absolutely no clue what they are doing. And I don't know, I want to hear your, your take on that, Josh, but at its base, this speech is a kind of both open, um, you know, a, a kind of alarm of, of violence coming, but also then a tacit or even explicit message to be prepared to meet that violence. It's pretty frightening. You know, the thing that, that always stands out, though, is these these references to the radical left. It's like, really? In this country? A radical left? Where? You know, in terms of there's certainly no uh, counterpart to the radical right in terms of the radical left, in terms of, of actual access to power and decision making and that sort of stuff. You know, when Joe Biden is being framed as some, you know, uh, radical leftist, when Obama is called a socialist, you're like... <laughs> Nothing has any meaning anymore. There's, words just don't mean anything. It's just word soup coming out of these people's mouths yeah. meant to uh, you know, get a certain reaction. But the, the funny thing is, I think we were talking about this the other day, that you know, they still want to use like socialist as this, this word that's going to conjure up these old Cold War images. And I just don't think particularly younger generations have any connotation like that in, in their heads. It just doesn't bring up the picture that these you know, octogenarian uh, you know, politicians seem to think it does. Uh, people who don't remember the McCarthy hearings, I guess, are not going to have the same uh, the same reaction to these these concepts as as they they want to believe people will. And I, I hopefully, I mean, it seems like this it's failing that it's not having the kind of um, you know it's not doing what Dixon was able to do, for instance, in '68. Right. 
which is kind of drive this quote unquote silent majority to come to the polls and, and vote for law and order. I mean, hopefully it will stay that way. But at, at this point, it seems like people are not really buying this. Yeah, I know. I, I have the feeling that, you know, millennials and Gen Z, you know, kids are like, hey, Trump, quit scaring our grandparents, you know, <laughs> <laughs> as a Marxist. What are you kidding me? Look, I mean, you know, we can kid around about this stuff. And but we know that these words do have resonance and often are associated in a kind of uh, context of violence that is unfortunately all too real. And I think it's, in fact, so real that you and I both decided we needed to lay down uh, an episode here today to try to get a handle, try to get our minds around how all of this works. Because among other things we have to do is, you know, work our way through the, uh, you know, the endless reporting the narrative of what we'll call the media, and not just politicians like Trump, but the media as well, uh, to find our way to some, maybe what, clarity on this whole issue? It's so hard. I mean, I, I would say that that our, the modern media is, is wholly unprepared for dealing with the discussions that are going, right now, going on right now. We've talked about both sides, sidesism and this sort of stuff, but it's impossible to cover news right now from the standpoint that there are two equal sides that both, you know, need special mm -hmm. uh, need to be heard in a, in a in an equal way, and that you know people can disagree on these issues, but here they are, and you can make your own determination. And you know, this is not a way of saying that those on the on the left are are automatically right. That sounded weird, but those are not <laughs> necessarily correct. But that you have one side of this this both sidesism that is not even trying to tell the truth at all. Right? That's not based on any kind of reality that the rest of us can even latch on to. If you're not, you know, watching Fox News, a lot of the stuff doesn't even make sense. You don't even know what they're referring to. If you're not like, you know, following right wing Twitter, this, the, the references they're making are just gobbledygook. And yet we're supposed to understand that there's two sides of this equation. Mm -hmm. And here's this side and here's this side. Now make your own determination. But at some point, I think as we've talked about, there is some kind of truth, right? Mm -hmm. There is some kind of reality that needs to be recognized and 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 that needs to be the center of the discussion actually not these these weird violent fantasies that are coming off are coming out of the mouth of of the president and his administration uh very well said um which leads me to think uh, josh that we have no other option now but to to get violent When we talk about violence, one of the big ironies in our society is that we do live in this extremely violence-based society and in so many ways, pop culture in terms of the size of our military budget, in the way we think about problems and solutions to those problems. And yet when people stand up against the society, when people protest, the expectation is for them to be nonviolent. And so there's almost this, this idea that the standards of those standing up to violence uh, have to be nonviolence, whereas the society itself is so steeped in these ideas of violence. Uh, exactly. And I tell you what, the numbers are starting to come in from the recent protests. Uh, yeah. Polls indicating, I don't know if you've read this, that uh, you know anywhere from 15 million to, say, 26 million people in the U.S. are said to have participated in at least one demonstration over the death of, of George Floyd. And if we can trust these figures, and they seem reasonable, I think, that would make the, the recent protests among the largest movements in the country's history, just in terms of sheer numbers 
of, of participants. And, and by almost any measure, uh, these massive protests were pretty broad-based, uh, racially, uh, pretty diverse, um, but also overwhelmingly, considering those sheer numbers, Josh, pretty peaceful, you know, by and large. Uh, the New York Times indicated in one of the, the lead-in stories that the vast majority of protesters in Minneapolis, like others around the country, marched peacefully. And yet, and yet, as you noted, the irony uh, on irony, this same New York Times story that I, from which I just read to you was not a story dedicated to the success of peaceful protests. That's not how it was framed. Uh, it was framed around the idea that there was violence in Minneapolis, violence. Over three nights, uh, the reporter uh, explains, a five-mile stretch of Minneapolis sustained extraordinary damage. The police precinct house itself was set on fire after the mayor gave orders to evacuate the building. Not since the 1992 unrest in Los Angeles has an American city suffered such destructive riots what do you think a lot going on there yeah right yeah a lot a lot a lot said and a lot a lot left unsaid I will, I will say in that in that section there but it's making some pretty keen links there and that's a great example of how you know the, the writing is set up to be kind of the subjective just retelling of what happened but it's making a very specific point in in that kind of objective guise i would say mm-hmm. yeah and it's hard to miss that right i mean the the, the thing that's going to stay with you is not the sort of arid statistics about peaceful you know numbers of peaceful but but the stuff the sexy stuff you know the fire the destruction the the cops and yeah uh look this had me fuming i have to say partner with the fourth estate you know that that independent and free press upon which we depend really uh or at least traditionally have you know for that that kind of um, truthful understanding of what is so often a, a, a partisan process. But, you know, again, as we've pointed out many times, if, if the aim here is to provide some some cover of objectivity, you know, s- spare me, right? Spare me. And and some of the worst, you know, part of this, I think, this narrative is, is the reporter concluding that a month later, the city is still struggling to understand what happened and why. I don't know, Josh. Are you struggling to understand? It seems pretty clear to me, but yeah, that's a, that's again this just example where the guise of objectivity is itself ideological because it's it's based on certain assumptions that it, they expect readers to also share, and therefore these you know poorly established conclusions the readers will also come to as well because we're all steeped in the same ideas about what's right, what's proper, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and you know it does. It does. I think highlight that the New York Times is largely uh, a paper written for a certain kind of person, right? And that certain kind of person, which is generally white, generally liberal, mm-hmm. uh, often urban, is going to accept those same assumptions that the reporter is expecting us to to accept. Uh, but it certainly is worth asking: Should we be accept- accepting those assumptions? Right. Absolutely. And in fact, that's what we're doing in not only this episode, folks, but also uh, the next episode. As well, I mean, we we pretty much decided we could probably devote, you know, a dozen episodes to this because it does uh, go so deep. And and what you pointed out there, just one aspect of that sort of the liberal, white, maybe educated, you know, reader or consumer of the New York Times, 
you know, it was also then uh, part of a system, you know, let's say a liberal Democrat, you know, a congressman or, or even president who then, uh, as we're going to see, often responds to these issues of violence with that kind of both sides, neutral or objective uh, approach and no end of commissions and studies and reports that essentially leave the system entirely uh, unchanged. And so, you know, we're going to go into a little bit deeper uh, with this today to discuss how these ways of reporting, these ways of framing, you know, uh, often uh, then frame our, our understandings. Uh, I would say the New York Times article, the piece I read you, does a couple of things. First of all, it frames uh, what we could call the targeting of property, you know, during the protests, the targeting of property as violence. Uh, in other words, it takes on its face that this should be described as violence or worse, destruction or worse yet, looting. And of course, the, you know, everybody's favorite rioting. You know, re remember, mm -hmm. as if all narrative possibilities have been exhausted, we're the people that called the Boston Tea Party the Boston Tea Party. We didn't call it the Boston yep. riot, you know, or the Boston looting, you know, or Boston. Boston Tea Riot has a nice ring to it, actually. I like that. <laughs> uh, so what it tells us is there's a kind of, you know, a narrative choice. And uh, and then the other thing that just really bugs me, I got to say, is the, what I consider the disingenuous asking of the question, as if that mm -hmm. makes for the objective or unbiased journalist. But the question itself is so, you know, disingenuous. The city is still struggling to understand what happened and why. So I think there are some really good answers to that, you know, like it's a mystery, right, that can only be solved by the objective reporter dispassionately investigating the facts. You know, what a bunch of nonsense, what a pretentious load of baloney that is, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Because, you know, even in this article, Josh, only a few sentences later, to many, the damage was an understandable response to years yeah. of injustice <laughs> at the hands of the Minneapolis police. An explosion of anger. Now that the writer is really hitting a stride. An explosion of anger that activists had warned was coming if the city did not reform law enforcement. Well, hell, so much for the mystery, I guess. Yeah, and it's so, I mean, the thing that that's so galling is the idea that the city is asking these questions. So you've now applied this, uh, you know, this agency to a physical structure, I guess, or a mm -hmm. physical space mm -hmm. is asking these questions uh, and doesn't have the answers. And then you make it clear that no, no, actually many people, <laughs> I, I mean, assumingly those people are exist within this city that's asking the questions. But um, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that it's, creating this illusion of, uh, well, we're just asking questions here. Who knows the answer to these questions? And by the way, here's the answer to the question. <laughs> Which was pretty obvious all along. Yeah, but it's a, it's a bizarre yeah. framing. Here's what I say sometimes, playing on the old gag, you know, denial, denial, denial. It ain't just a river yeah. in Egypt, is it? You know, um, denial is what we're talking about here as far as I'm concerned with the New York Times, the American media, and not to mention the president who has his own, uh, you know, reasons for strict denial. Um, but when you pretend like there's no obvious reason for what you've just insisted on describing as violence and destruction, you know, as if those behaviors were just some pathology to be lamented by, you know, uh, calm, white, liberal, educated readers or something, 
then I, you know, I think it's the height of dishonesty. I really, I really do. And look, I mean, I, at least the journalist writing this piece stuck with it longer than Trump did in his Fourth of July speech. I mean, you, if you read the article long enough, you get down to people saying things like, "I'm disgusted that Minneapolis is in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons: police shootings, intolerance, inequality." That was the mayor being quoted. A woman, mm-hmm. uh, Nakima Levy Armstrong, a civil rights attorney, who, by the way, had helped organize the police protests, not only after George Floyd, but also back in 2015. I mean, there's a long history of this in Minneapolis, right? That she had personally encountered people, uh, told the city council in 2015 that she had personally encountered people who were ready to burn down the police precinct house. Now, it's five Mm -hmm. years before they actually did it. If we do not rein in the police department, address the inequality, she said, we were poised to become the next Ferguson. Again, that was back in 2015. Ms. Levy Armstrong concluded this is a combustible situation. So, yeah, the, the, the reporter eventually gets to the brass tacks, gets to the explanations that were there all along, but only after coding and framing, you know, the whole piece in that more digestible kind of almost innocent questioning, which I find to be so terribly uh disingenuous. It reminds me that, you know, so there's been some pushback now against the white fragility idea. And I've seen a lot of critiques of Robin D'Angelo's book now, more and more, I would say. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that article almost seems like it's the it's the example of the way this has to work, that the idea that there's this white fragility that we have to be talked to in a certain way so we can come to these conclusions without being hit in the face with the fact that, oh, there's a system of oppression that's existed in this country, in these cities for decades, if not centuries. Uh, that what's happening is perfectly natural considering that system Mm -hmm. of oppression. But you can't just come out and say that because you don't want to offend the sensibilities of this particular readership Mm -hmm. who, you know, again, I would say is probably generally pretty liberal, uh, probably fairly wealthy, certainly as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, People who are almost certainly property owners, uh, I would say readers of the New York Times more likely than maybe virtually any other constituency in the country. But um, that, yeah, what you have to do is is you got to almost, you know, soothe them first pat them on the head a little bit, and let them know everything's going to be okay before you hit them with, and here's the actual explanation of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, again, I think that's really well said, you know, and I think given that that's the, uh, the status quo, I think it's entirely unacceptable. You know, we've talked before about bringing a certain moral clarity to the task of understanding what's happening. And look, either, seems to me, either we refuse to document and understand these events you know, in the, in the proper context of, of America, uh, America's history, you know, or, or like Trump in the 4th of July, you know, speech, we just choose to whitewash it, you know, and, and continue uh, to exonerate ourselves or something in the ongoing problem. But look, if we want to heal our sick country, we cannot be satisfied with the mystifying or even fetishizing of, of the violence that takes place. We have to understand it for what it is historically and in a, in a history of now. And so here's what I propose, Josh, that you know we turn now to a couple of very resonant voices, uh, two individuals who in their own time devoted a great deal of thought and attention to these questions of power and violence uh, in history, and you and I have been talking about them for these weeks past, and so we'll uh, and we've mentioned them from time to time, but want to bring them onto the stage today. One of them, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who in his famous book Discipline and Punish 
made a very simple but astute observation, and this was back in the 1970s. Foucault said, where there is power, there is resistance. And I would think the New York Times could do itself a huge favor in the honest reporting of America by, by coming to terms with that. Where there is power, there is resistance. Uh, what do you think? It's so powerful. You know, we were talking about, you know, I don't know how, how well-known Foucault is to people who haven't been in school for a long time or people, I, I'd say people maybe didn't go to graduate school, maybe don't even encounter him that much. Mm -hmm. But he's, he's just one of those thinkers that, you know, there's almost a before you read Foucault and after you read Foucault kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, intellectually. And that, that doesn't mean you have to agree with him. But once you read him, that, that you always then have to, you always have to deal with his thinking, right? Mm -hmm. That you always have to have that in your head that, oh, these ideas are out there and they're, they, they need to be um, faced up to, right? Again, whether Absolutely. you agree or not, they need, they need to be dealt with because they're just so profound um, and they're so different than I think the way anybody pr previously had talked about power before. Oh, no doubt. I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, his productive years as a scholar in 1960s, 70s, he died in 1984. You know, he's, he's not satisfied with the cant and, you know, platitudes of, of modern culture, you know, to understand the culture of our world, to understand the world we, we live in. He's, I mean, styled himself and was considered, I guess, more a philosopher than a historian. Uh, but uh, just as you said, I mean, this is a guy who was willing to, to dive straight, you know, into the vortex of this thing. And, and so we're going to come back to him. We're going to, we'll be mentioning him from time to time. But the other um, guy I want to mention here, the other acknowledged authority that is on this question of violence is somebody who we have quoted uh, a number of times, Franz Fanon, uh, Martinique-born uh, black colonial subject of the French Empire. Uh, whose book, The Wretched of the Earth, published in, in 1961, became uh, an acknowledged classic uh, in, the, uh, in what was now the growing genre of, of works on you know, decolonization and independence movements and what we used to call the, the Third World. And like Foucault, uh, Fanon made a straightforward but essential point about violence in systems of power. So let me quote Foucault. He says, or Fanon rather, the very same people who had it constantly drummed into them that the only language they understood was the language of force. Uh, now decide to express themselves with force. And so he's talking about the binary world of, of colonial, the French colonial empire, the colonizer and the colonist. Uh, and says that the, the people who had uh, violence drummed into them, namely the, the, the colonists by the French uh, colonizers, uh, that that was the only language they could understand, the language of force that had been taught to them. And now they were deciding to use that language themselves, that language of force. And so the reason I love this, Josh, is because Fanon is, is recognizing the obvious, something that the, the Times has a hard time doing. And that is uh, that those who colonize are colonized by force. They're colonized through violence and their obedience is exacted through violence. They are subject, in other words, to routine violence. And when they decide to defend or fight back what Fanon will call counter-violence, that's not surprisingly the tact they take, the one that they have been taught by their colonizers. 
Yeah, there's this amazing quote. I, there's a, a documentary on Tiananmen Square called The Gate of Heavenly Peace that I'll often show my class. And um, the, the narrator makes this point early on in the film that when people stand up to power, uh, they use the lessons that power taught them, mm-hmm. right? That, that ultimately we are, we are the outcome of the power relations that, that we're part of. It's, it's built into us, which is kind of what Foucault is talking about, that power is internalized mm-hmm. in very profound ways. And, and Fanon obviously had not read Foucault, uh, but, but in many ways they're, they're, they understand these points uh, in, a, in a similar way, that, that we are what we were made to be, basically. And what we're made to be is these sets of power relationships that we're, we're born into and we live, live within and, and one of Fanon's big things is trying to understand the psychology of, of the colonized. What happens to us psychologically when we're under these types of, of power systems? Um, and it does have an effect on people. It does have a psychology all its own. Um, so there's just so much profound stuff that you, you get from Fanon specifically because he understands the experience of being colonized both in Martinique itself, but also because of his time in Algeria as he goes there as a doctor, basically, mm-hmm. and then lives out most of the rest of his life, I believe, mm-hmm in Algeria at a time when there is this revolution going on against against French rule. Um, and definitely one of the most profound voices of anti-colonial resistance you're going to find. But in doing so, and, and like Foucault, one of our most eloquent um, kind of philosophers of, of power itself. Yeah, I like that you said almost a, a, a psychology of force or a psychology of power. And you, you read a lot about uh, Fanon being, you know, sort of a student of the social psychology of power and and certainly Foucault as a, as a philosopher, you know, looking into history, uh, as you say, uh, understood that as well. Power itself, you know, as Foucault describes, was was the very language, you know, the mode of communicating, the very interface between a government, what we might call a governing power, right, and the population mm. that it presumed to govern. Um, that is, the, the language between government and government was the language of power, says Foucault. And we have to understand this in order to understand things like, you know, the, the expression of violence as a subset of that language. Uh, the basic claim of the governing power as a sovereign entity, you know, was something that interested Foucault a lot, that claim. What, what gives a government? You and I have talked about, for example, the making of curfews, you know, where a say the, the city mm-hmm. council or the mayor of, say, San Jose, California, will say there's a curfew imposed now. It, well, it started out in the evening and it got earlier and earlier, right? By, you know, eventually it's by three o'clock. By what inherent authority can, you know, a mayor say that you can't be in a public space at a certain time? You know, that's the question that interests Foucault. Where, how do we justify this? Where does this come from? And what are its implications? And, you know, as he recognized that this governing power really depends on a kind of a disciplining of the population. Something else we've been talking a lot about, you and I, um, how we almost unthinkingly fall into line to do certain things. You know, I saw an article about Sacramento and a city ordinance about standing during the national anthem. And, you know, that's been in the news a lot because of Colin Kaepernick and, and sort of using that moment as a moment of resistance or protest. But for most people going to a, a ball game, you know, it's just a kind of unthinking, you know, action. But but for someone like Foucault, it represents a kind of disciplining, a kind of conditioning, a kind of obedience that a governing system uh, imposes on the people. And, and people can feel that they're doing it for their own reasons or, or fully support it. But nevertheless, I, I think there's no denying that in this case, the, the song that we're rising 
four is a song itself about violence and power, <laughs> the national anthem, you know, yeah. and we're falling in line in a kind of obedient way uh, to observe that. So, uh, yeah, Foucault calls that disciplining, you know, the, the power to compel people to to obey or behave or not behave in certain prescribed ways. And the corollary to that is the one that we're getting at today. This is this disobedience is met with what? It's met with punishment. Mm -hmm. uh, and violence is a part of that language. It's not the only language of punishment. We're going to talk next week about how the law uses other kinds of punishment. But, you know, it can be the blunt force of, of punishment. So, uh, look, Foucault charted uh, the historical course of, of his claim here, you know, from the mid Middle Ages into the modern era, where that language of punishment uh, through violence was often inflicted in some spectacular ways. You and I were talking about how he starts his book on discipline and punish with a gruesome recounting of a public execution, what, back in the mid-18th uh, century, I guess, right? Yeah. An attempted regicide. Yeah, a guy who so. had stabbed a penknife, uh, you know, through the heavy outer clothing of the French king. It was a little more than a French uh, or a flesh wound, I should say. But uh, nevertheless, he was subjected to the worst imaginable. And I think that was the point of it. You know, the worst imaginable kind of public torture, the spectacle of execution. Uh, Foucault says it was the last one, basically, in France. It, it didn't go well. They kind of bungled it. And, and you know, but... It gave way in Europe to these more monotonous, less spectacular modes of punishment, uh, less explicitly violent, though still presuming control over the body, in, in the form of the new prison systems, the penitentiaries, and and uh, uh, that were built and 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 modeled in the kind, including the United States in the 19th century, a kind of watershed moment where the idea was you weren't just torturing uh, the uh, criminal, but you were somehow trying to correct right? Uh, the behavior mm -hmm. of the person. So corrections becomes its own sort of study. When you, when you say it that way, just the fact that we call these correctional institutions is, it's itself, um, it's such, it's, it's so easy to just let that wash over you and, and not think about it. But that's, there's something there when you call these things correctional institutions, it, it gets across what they're supposed to be, despite the fact that the correctional part doesn't seem to be a big part of, of the modern prison system, I, I would say. It's part of the right. justification, certainly. Right. Um, but as, as we're going to talk about more next week, you know, people who come out of prison are not, you know, able to just reestablish their lives because they've now paid their debt to society. There's all these other ways that they continue to be subject to, to the authority of the state, even after the, the prison sentence, even after correction has been made. Yeah, exactly. And, and Foucault really grounds this in what we've been describing as sort of the presumed readership of the New York Times. That is the, the kind of liberal, enlightened folk of the late 18th century who saw in this what we might almost consider a kind of conceit, you know, now or pretense that somehow you weren't just inflicting an unjustifiable terror on someone you were you were somehow reforming them you know so the whole mm -hmm. idea of reform and, and penitence itself giving the person a chance to do penance and penitentiaries and the whole language reflects this this sort of presumption or pretense of of reform and and you know to the point where he 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 says very dryly you know we end up putting medical doctors in at the point of execution that, that it's almost right. seen as a kind of medicinal exercise to mm -hmm. execute a prisoner, not spectacularly in the public square, but behind a prison wall, 
you know, where the presumably humanitarian impulse of a doctor is now supervising. So the obedience is still there. The disciplining is still there. It's just that the routines change and, and, and governments farm them out. You know, it's no longer just the executioner, but, you know, every from hospitals, you know, schools, uh, private mm -hmm. institutions, banking institutions discipline the customers, you know, and use punishments and fines and that sort of thing. Heck, even where I live, Josh, in Cupertino, the property managers, you know, oy vey, th those people, they won't leave you. God forbid you should park in the wrong parking <laughs> spot, you know? Yeah, and what it creates is is this whole sense, these ideas of, of norms and then what's abnormal as well that we come to uh, internalize and we come to see as as obviously right and wrong when they're completely arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. They're established by the state for particular reasons, um, but we, we come to see them as some kind of eternal eternal idea that, uh, of course, we we think these things are normal. Of course, these we think these things are abnormal. When it's it's really the society that's kind of established these things, and we've we who have internalized those ideas. I always use the example in, in class, and this is a, a minor example certainly, but it gets across the way this power operates. Is that maybe you imagine driving down a deserted you know uh, you know city street. Uh, late at night, there's clearly nobody else around, and you come to a stoplight and it's red, and you sit there and you sit there and you wait for it to turn green. There's no way there's any consequence to to going through that light at that moment um, because you can see that you're not going to get hit. There's no you can see clearly in every direction, but you still sit at that light. I think most of us still sit at that light because we've eternal internalized that idea that the right thing to do is to sit at that light until we are told by this machine. Right? We're told by yes. this this apparatus that mm -hmm. now it is okay for you, a thinking, rational human being, to, uh, to, to make this decision to go across the street. But, um, but until, until that point, you are just subject to this power, this, this state power, yeah. which is telling you to yeah. do something oh, yeah. that goes against what you probably should be doing. Well, and Foucault had a whole language for this, right? You know, I mean, he made up these sort of um, memorable phrases like technologies of power. And what better example than a stoplight, than a technology yeah. of power? And gee, you know, my, my poor neighbor once went, went away on vacation. They left their car uh, in a uh, unmarked uh, parking spot because they were going to have somebody staying at their house. So they gave up their space. Well, what happened is her car got towed and she called me. They were in, you know, I don't know, the islands or someplace and said, I'll wire you the money. Can you go get our car out of impound? And so I went down in, into San Jose and East San Jose to the impound yard. And this was a place with high fences and razor wire mm -hmm. and what looked like prison bars between you and the cashier. I mean, if it wasn't a prison exactly, it was modeled, you know, on a kind of prison design. So even something simple like the impounding of your car, you know, but, right. but something that Fanon understood and gets us back to this issue of violence is that when you're talking about people who live in colonial settings or, you know, uh, what, for lack of a better term, we'll call caste systems or whatnot. That is mostly impoverished people, uh, native peoples or in America, those called racial minorities that because they're not, you know, amassing lots of wealth and property, the, the part of them that gets punished, you know, isn't isn't the pocketbook necessarily. You know, it's the body. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. use of violence in that case to discipline uh, the body. And I've, you know, I've heard just recently in one of those viral, uh, you know, web videos that, uh, you know, some proud representative of, of Trump's America said, well, you know, the reason p uh, uh, black people get hurt is, is they resist arrest. They don't cooperate with, mm -hmm. with the police. But, I, I, you know, and you hear that kind of thing a lot. But look, the assumption here is that cooperation is the designed purpose of 
of policing, but it isn't. The design purpose of policing is what Foucault calls security, which is to say the direct application of power to those who are already presumed to have disobeyed or not cooperated, you know? And so, yeah. look, it's it's that resistance, uh, you know, the, the, the police are predisposed and trained to target. Uh, the New York City Police Commissioner in a recent article commenting on the rash of gun violence in New York City said, uh, when you take basically half of the population of Rikers Island and put it onto the street and then wonder what's going on, it's dumbfounding to me. And, and what I read in that statement was this presumption that, that the, the people that were released from Rikers because of the quarantine are already presumed to be criminal and violent and therefore not anyone to be protected and served, you know, but to be combated on that long arm of the law as a disciplining force. Right. Uh, they, uh, you know, he said that people think they know more about law enforcement than the police. And he cited a, a chokehold bill passed by the city council. I, first of all, I thought it was already uh, made uh, impermissible to use chokeholds, but, but apparently not. I thought we'd been through that before. And so this police commissioner said it's, you know, no wonder this violence is happening, that officers need more resources, public support and laws that help them fight crime rather than constraining them. And that's the language of law and order that we're used to hearing and conditioned to hearing in America. But if we look back at somebody like Franz Fanon, who, remember, is getting to the social psychology of all this in a colonial setting where policing was also the chief means of discipline and enforcing obedience, he said the violence of the colonial regime and the counterviolence of the colonized balance each other and respond to each other in extraordinary and reciprocal ways. And so he's calling counterviolence now a response to the imposition of violence and that system of power and discipline that leaves the colonized person very little choice other than submission to punishment or responding to punishment in kind. And I know we wanted to mention a minute that that Algerian context that he's living in, because most Americans were not as familiar with the French colonial world. I even went back myself and did you know, some reading uh, to kind of refresh my own understanding of what happened. And I think it's remarkable when we look at what was essentially a civil war now in the French colony of, of Algeria from 1850, or excuse me, 1954 to 1962, as uh, native elements in Algeria were fighting for independence against French rule. There was a large settler population of Europeans living in Algeria who absolutely uh, imposed violence and force against what we'll call the native elements, right, of, of, of North African and even Arab peoples. You had a, a religious divide here, among other things. But the violence, Josh, as I went back and looked at it, that civil war was, was absolutely stunning. And it's the violence that Fanon is writing about, you know, the violence that he's saying in that social psychology of the colonial world is the very violence that has socialized and conditioned the lives of those, you know, living under that regime. You know, as you were as you were saying all that, the the, the idea that uh, the police commissioner in New York saying we're being restrained, we can't do what we need to do. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the language of these anti-colonial uh, of, of these, uh, you know, these attempts to put down these anti-colonial resistance movements. Right. Mm -hmm. Again and again and again, we're told that, you know, the French. This is a, this is something. This is part of the dialogue in France during the the Algerian War, and certainly the Viet, Viet, uh, you know the resistance 
the Vietnamese are putting up against them as well, that if our armies were just left unrestrained to do what they needed to do, this war could be over, right? And that's such a big part of, you know, our own uh, national rhetoric about Vietnam. You know, famously, uh, Sylvester Stallone puts the words into his character Rambo's mouth, do we get to win this time when he goes back to Vietnam, right? Yes. That we would have won if not for... Uh, you know, this this restraint put exactly. upon us. And then more recently in, in the Iraq war, the, the second Iraq war, I guess, that was a refrain as well. I, I literally heard somebody say that in a, in a store in Folsom that, you know, if the media wasn't paying such close attention to what the army was doing, they could actually get the job done uh, because they'd be, unre- be more unrestrained in their use of violence and they could put down these, these, these movements. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, you know, there's a straight line between what the com- police commissioner was saying in 2020 and what, you know, French conservatives were saying in oh, yeah. 1955, right? And, that, and that's why I think this is such an important consideration to get our minds around what's happening in America. Because, you know, what? I, the thing that blew me away, too, Josh, is that in Algeria, as Fanon talked about, one of the uh, the French the French themselves were very uncomfortable. I mean, the French government in France was very uncomfortable with all this. They didn't want to lose Algeria as a colony necessarily, but neither were they... Um, you know, willing to, they had already lost the colonial war in Vietnam, you know, in, in mm-hmm. 1954, uh, the surrender at Dien Bien Phu. Uh, and so, you know, among others, Charles de Gaulle, you know, this is sort of egocentric, you know, pride, uh, kind of prideful claim on not losing Algeria. But at the same time, they didn't really want to spend a lot of time. So what, one of the things they do is they permit a law that allows local uh, European settler folk living in Algiers and elsewhere, not the Arabs, not the, um, you know, the Berber North Africans, but the Europeans to form their own sort of citizen militias, armed citizen militias. And it was the arming of those folks, a kind of proxy for the French, you know, army, if you will, that was supposed to keep law and order. And I can't help of course, what it did is it simply led to, you know, indiscriminate violence and shooting of, mm-hmm. of North African people and that kind of thing. But I couldn't rem- help but be reminded, you know, of this idea that in America that somehow we meet this objective of violence with more violence, with more guns, you know, uh, Second Amendment types, you know, promoting gun ownership as a way to keep law and order over those who presumably are coming to get us. That's why the Trump rhetoric is so insidious i think because it fans the flames of that and and in algeria at least it had you know real and devastating consequences so you know i want to just take us out of this part and and let you get into your bit with with fanon again you know he says the colonial regime and and it's from him by the way that we get our title today a world steeped in in violence was his way of putting it the colonial regime owes its legitimacy to force and at no time does it ever endeavor to cover up this nature of things every statue of fighter bay or Lyote or bogot or bangon uh, these are our french heroes of, of you know the french military every one of these conquistadors ensconced on colonial soil is a constant reminder of one and the same thing. We are here by force of the bayonet. And you know what I'm going to say, right? That the the statues in our own country overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. are statues of military figures, whether uh, Confederate or American, you know, U.S. military figures. And Fanon's point was these serve, and and Foucault would love this, right? You know, in the technologies of violence and order, that these, these statues serve as, in effect, 
an ever-present reminder of how you were subjugated in the first place and how you will continue to be subject to violence in order to exact that kind of disobedience. And so all we got to do is go back to Minneapolis, my friend, you know, to see where uh, a kind of colonial population, you know, of black Americans, uh, residents of Minneapolis, who have been found 20% more likely, you know, than any of uh, the other city population to be pulled over, arrested and have force used against them. You know, this, this is police department data now, right? Black people accounted for more than 60% uh, in the, as victims in the Minneapolis police shootings from late 2009 to 2019. So when we reframe that, you know, unlike the New York Times, you know, where we see that kind of imposition of violent regimes against the people impoverished, against the people, you know, targeted specifically for physical force. Suddenly what the Times insists on calling violence sounds to me a lot more like the Boston Tea Party. You know, it sounds a lot more like resistance mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and even freedom fighting. I'll leave us uh, for this segment with a phenomenal quote. And by an ironic twist of fate, it is the colonized who states that it is the colonizer who only understands the use of force, after all. And it's hard, I think, to argue with that logic. But you're going to take us now to a segment where, again, we have to confront the ambigu ambiguities and ambivalencies uh, of violence. If them supremacists need an enemy, I'm your huckleby. You not going outwit, outplot, outsteal, or muzzle me. Won't even mention hustling is puzzling when the meek act big. Really, shit, really, just kick back and inherit the world. Oh, yeah. Just kick back and So let's talk about Gandhi. We, we, we have this plan to talk about violence. And, and in talking about violence, I think it's necessary to also talk about maybe the figure of nonviolence in, in modern world history. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi is uh, one of, I'd say, the most famous individuals of the past 200 years. Is that fair? Um, yes, absolutely. I think most... Most people, you know, I ask my students their thoughts about him. And I think the very least they've heard the name. I don't know that, that people have that clear of an idea of, of exactly what he did. But he's, he's a figure that I have my own complex views about as well. And, that, you know, when I said earlier that I was overprepared and underorganized, it's be partly, partly because of, you know, I spent the last probably five days reading Gandhi, right? Reading his words, reading his, uh, some of his critics, what they had said about him, reading Gandhi's responses to his critics. And the hope was that through all that reading, some kind of clarity would emerge about who this guy was and what he represents. And, uh, you know, was he right? Was he wrong? This kind of stuff. And I find myself in some ways even more confused about how to understand this figure than I, I, I was when I started this whole thing. But I think, you know, one place to start is just his, his doctrine of nonviolence. This is something that comes to him partly through his upbringing. His, his mom is a very devout uh, Hindu woman. She is very um, influenced by uh, by the Jains, who are a religious group in India who believe in total uh, nonviolence. It's a, a concept called ahimsa, total nonviolence towards all living things. And the most devout Jain monks won't eat root crops because the idea of like pulling up a carrot from the ground, you can imagine disturbs what's happening under the ground and, and does violence to the things underneath. And so while they're not Jains themselves, there is this... this um, influence of this Jain idea of ahimsa that's that's going to be kind of built into who uh, the young Gandhi would would eventually become. Now, I don't know how, how many how much people know the contours of the story, so I'll just be quick about this. 
but he eventually, uh, despite his, you know, his particular upbringing in a fairly devoutly Hindu uh, household, he eventually gets a Western education. This is something that a lot of people around him don't like. Uh, his mother eventually agrees that he can get this Western education, but she's not happy about it. And then eventually it's decided that he's going to go to London and study law. Um, at this point, this is, um, I guess, the late 1880s. You could, you could go to law school with just a high school diploma. And so he decides to go. And even that angers a lot of the people within his caste because high caste Hindus are not supposed to cross the ocean. But he does it anyway. And he gets, goes to London and he falls in love with the place and he makes friends with all these British people and he gets his law degree. But when he comes back to India, he just can't find a footing, right? He can't find uh, establishing a law practice successfully. And this is why in 1893, he goes to South Africa. In South Africa, there's large numbers of Indians there. And he takes up uh, in a law practice owned by a, a Muslim Indian who is a friend of the family. And what he finds in South Africa is something he had never experienced before. He grew up, in fact, in a uh, what's called a princely state in India, which means it's, it's governed by a native Indian. Uh, and the British just have, um, you know, influence over it, but don't rule it directly. So he doesn't experience kind of the, the sort of racism that maybe Indians in other parts of British India would have faced. Same thing in London. For as, as racist as the British could be, we, we see this over and over again that Indians who go to England find uh, they're treated pretty well. They're not treated the way they would be by, by British people in India itself. But in South Africa, as you might know, as people might know, there is this racial regime that's built into the very structure of that colony. And so literally within a month of arriving in South Africa, he's kicked off a train because he, he buys a first class ticket, assuming that, of course, if he buys a first class ticket, he can go to first class. And he's told, no, no, you're a colored person. You can't be in the first class cart, carriage. rather. He's beaten to a pulp by a group of, of white men because he did the wrong thing at the right, wrong time. Uh, he's walking on the sidewalk and he's pushed off it because he didn't you know, get out of the way quickly enough of the white folks who were coming his way. And this is within a month of arriving. So right away, this fairly naive guy who's, again, grown up in this very particular context, comes face to face with what power looks like, right? What it actually looks like uh, in this context of colonialism. And he begins to develop his own ideas from this point. And he becomes this great leader of South African Indians, fighting for civil rights, fighting against racial laws, fighting against the kind of segregation of Indians within, within the society. And, and by the way, uh, you know, I don't know if people come across this, but it increasingly has become common to refer to Gandhi as being racist. And it largely has to do with his South African experience and this is another point I'm kind of ambivalent about. He says some things that are, I think we would take as, as very racialized statements against, uh, against Africans. But the context for him saying those things is, again, as this extremely naive guy who's had very few life experiences up to the point he gets to South Africa, who is very attuned to his own community um, and is less attuned to the, the African community uh, that he's living amongst. And again, I don't mean to defend him from this because the stuff he said could be quite ugly. But one of the things we see throughout his life is how laser focused he is on Indian issues. Uh, for all his, his uh, fame as this great leader of India, it's very rare to have him speak out about any kind of larger global issues. He doesn't speak up very often for other oppressed communities throughout the world. And so was he racist? Was he not? I don't know. I don't know how to, how to weigh in on that. But there's complexity to what's going on here. And it does kind of go along with his, his broader work, which is intensely focused on Indian issues and Indian populations. But eventually in South Africa, he develops this, this concept of resistance 
that he's called he calls Satyagraha. Satyagraha is, is going to be translated in various ways, but holding fast to the truth is maybe the, the, the most literal translation. But he'll, he'll often use the term, when he, when he uses the term in English as well, he talks about soul force. What you have to do is, is look into your soul and discover truth and then operate from that truth. And the soul force always has to be peaceful. There can never be violence there. And in this way, he becomes a hero to, to Indians. Obviously, first in South Africa, where his, his movements actually win some concessions, where he's able to get some of the laws, the most racist laws, overturned, at least against Indians, again, to be clear about that. And by the time he eventually makes his way back to India, after 21 years in South Africa, he is already a massively famous figure in 1915. Right? He's been living in South Africa again for decades, but Indians know him. He's one of the few kind of nationally known figures in the entire, uh, in the entire colony. He almost immediately picks up in, in India as a nationalist leader in his own right. And what he does in his first really five years in India is takes Indian nationalism, which really up to that point had been a fairly kind of middle-class movement. It was largely uh, involved uh, Western-educated Indians. It was a very constitutional movement generally. It didn't engage in, in kind of civil dis disobedience all that much. Generally, Indian nationalism at, up to that point believed the British were of, you know, they were good people. They just had a bad system. And if we can just convince them to change the system, we can reform and things will get better. He takes that movement. And by 1920, he's transformed it into this mass movement that continues to involve these middle-class Indians, but also includes masses of people, millions and millions of, of Indians, of peasants. Uh, Gandhi famously starts dressing in homespun cotton, as opposed to the fancy clothes of some of his peers. He travels by train, but never first class now. He always travels in third class. He goes to villages, and he speaks to people, and he, he converses with people, and he organizes people, and develops his entire movement based upon, upon not convincing the British to leave through violence, through bombs, which have become a more common means of resistance, but through this soul force, figuring out what's wrong and then standing up to it. And so Indian nationalism becomes this, as I said, this mass movement. And the British can increasingly see Gandhi as a challenge to their rule in India. And I just want to quote this because it's, it really gets at who Gandhi is. In, in 1922, there's this, this massacre that occurs. It's, it's something that you know, sounds kind of familiar, actually, in our, in our own historical context, that in northern India, there is this, this uh, moment where uh, there's a peaceful protest going on. The local police force, made up almost entirely of Indians, by the way, uh, engages with that peaceful uh, protest with, with violence, with force. The crowd, which had been nonviolent, now becomes enraged, and they attack the local police precinct, and they eventually burn it down. And it turns out it's burned down with a lot of the police officers still inside. And so it's this shocking act of violence. Uh, that comes out of a movement that had up to that point been largely peaceful. Um, and Gandhi is held responsible for this. And he is charged, he can't be charged with murder because he wasn't there and he didn't uh, order anything like that. But he's charged with uh, promoting disaffection against the legitimate government of India. So that's the charge. And he goes to court for this and he pleads guilty. And, in, in, you know, again, I, I showed you this quote before, but uh, it's a pretty stunning quote and it gets at, again, the character of Gandhi. He says, quote, Section 124A, under which I am happily charged, is perhaps the prince among the political sections of the Indian Penal Code designed to suppress the liberty of the citizen. And I love that he says, I am happily charged with this. Uh, affection cannot be manufactured or regulated by law. Now, Foucault actually might disagree with that, right? 
He says that's exactly how affection is is manufactured, or affection is manufactured. That's one of the jobs of power. But um, I have no personal ill will against any single administrator, much less can I have any disaffection towards the king's person. But I hold it to be a virtue to be disaffected toward a government which in its totality has done more harm to India than any previous system. And so because he he pleads guilty, the judge actually reluctantly, because he kind of likes Gandhi, the judge reluctantly uh, decides he has to charge him and he sentences him to six years in prison for that. But just the idea that, you know, this is at the heart of his idea is that uh, you create laws that we don't agree with, that are immoral, and we look into our own souls and we determine which laws are moral, which laws are ethical, which laws uh, are, are immoral. And if we come up against an immoral law, a law that goes against reason, then we we resist it. We engage in civil resistance. And civil resistance means um, I refuse to follow that law. And the, the, the part of that that's really important is um, if you are arrested for going against these laws, then you should do what Gandhi just did in that quote. He says, yeah, I'm guilty of this horrible law, this stupid law. I will happily be charged with causing disaffection towards the government because that's exactly what I was trying to do. Um, but it's in, in, in place of violence, uh, you take that attitude, that laws that are moral, I will not accept. If you choose to punish me for that, I will accept that punishment as well. If you want to kill me for that, you can do that as well. Um, and just uh, to add some color to this, uh, Ho Chi Minh, the great Vietnamese nationalist leader, said once that uh, he says, and I don't have the quote, I haven't been able to find it, but uh, I, I quoted this in my, in my senior thesis at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, Ho Chi Minh said, if Gandhi was born in a French colony, he'd be dead by now. Um, and it does get across it. The different ways we'll say the French dealt with their colonies versus the British. The British could be brutal, to be clear. Uh, but, but they generally uh, took a relatively light hand to Gandhi. They locked him up, but they didn't actually ever kill him. They didn't send him to the worst prisons. Two, by the way, Winston Churchill's everlasting chagrin, because he always wanted Gandhi to just be, a, when he went on a hunger strike, they, he, he would say, just let him die. It'd be better if we would just let him die of his hunger strike instead of responding. So you have this, this idea then built on total nonviolence. And the base of that idea is that if you respond to violence with violence, you're not solving anything, you're just continuing the problem. Uh, Gandhi's idea is that freedom for Indians doesn't just mean freedom from Great Britain, but also um, freedom within oneself as well. That essentially for him, this concept of, of independence was a political concept, certainly, and that's how a lot of his followers saw it, but it was also very personal as well, that we cannot be free unless we've also looked into ourselves and freed ourselves individually. Um, and so this is where Gandhi becomes a, a complicated figure because his ideas are, are powerful. I, I, I hope, hopefully that sounded, you know, um, important the way he was saying that, but it requires a lot. It requires a lot to kind of take this stance that Gandhi did. And it's hard work. He makes the point that when we resist the government with violence, essentially, what we're doing is we're just recreating the systems that created that violence in the first place. That you can't fix violence with violence because you've now essentially invited this thing into your heart. And once it's there, it's hard to get rid of, right? And so he says, ultimately, nonviolence has to be the response to, 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 um, to everything. And increasingly, people grow impatient with Gandhi. Um, he's going to maintain this idea that nonviolence is the only proper way of responding throughout his entire life. If anything, he becomes even more attached to this idea as time goes on. And as you read his, his stuff and you read the reactions to his stuff, what you start seeing is that 
Everybody from every uh, corner of India, from every ideological position, comes to be annoyed with Gandhi. He will always have his millions of supporters. Right? He will always have that base of support. Uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, the eventual first president of India, is a devoted follower of Gandhi in many ways. But even he gets kind of frustrated with Gandhi. And so, you know, just to kind of go through this, the communists who, uh, you know, Indian communists and just the communists in general throughout the world call him a reactionary. They say he's just a, a, a spiritual reactionary. He wants to go back to the old days. He doesn't understand class conflict. Um, and that what he's really doing in his efforts to create this nonviolent movement is he's serving the interests of the bourgeois. Right? The property owners are the ones who follow him because they don't want property destroyed. And the best way to not have property destroyed is to engage in nonviolence. Now, the reality is Gandhi doesn't care about the bourgeois. He doesn't care about property. He critiques the kind of money lenders in India. He critiques the capitalist class in India. Um, but the communist critique is that whatever Gandhi's reason for this, he's serving the interests of the bourgeois. And as long as he's following this position of, of, uh, of nonviolence, he's going to serve this counter-revolutionary force. To religious Hindus, he's seen as someone who would abandon Hinduism for what they call Christian mysticism. Right? So whereas communists and leftists are saying he's just this conservative Hindu, actual conservative Hindus are saying, no, he's barely even a Hindu anymore. He's basically a follower of Christ now. Um, for British conservatives, to use Winston Churchill's words, he is, uh, quote, a seditious fakir. And that the fact that uh, he should go striding half naked up the steps of the Viceroy's palace to negotiate and parlay on equal terms with the representative of the king's emperor is nauseating and humiliating. Right. So he's attacked from the, the kind of uh, conservative British position for being this uh, this uh, this holy man who doesn't understand politics and who is a uh, humiliating spectacle. Just uh, even seeing him in the halls of power. So, again, from kind of every side, Gandhi's kind of taking this punishment and he writes about this. He talks about the fact that every time I open up letters, I'm being abused by these letters, uh, by all these these writers and uh and it just, you know, in the end, when you read the critics, every time I, I read one of the critics, I'm like, yeah, they're right. Gandhi is like that. One of his biggest critics is an untouchable um, or of the untouchable caste in India, the lowest caste in India. And Gandhi claims to be a supporter of the untouchables. Uh, he wants to free them from the burden of untouchability. Um, but his critics say that essentially he's, he's trying to, actually to put it in our own modern parlance, he wants to be a leader uh, he wants to 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 free the the untouchables instead of just being an ally, right? And uh, and so he's seen as as this guy who's ultimately in his support for the untouchables is taking the superior view and trying to save them instead of just helping them save themselves. Any reactions to to what I've been saying? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I I think you know your focus on Gandhi is you're bringing this idea of of what had always been this. Uh, conditioning of the body you know and Gandhi's saying we've also been conditioned uh, of our minds and 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 they can still control our bodies you know particularly if we don't react with violence but we can control our minds you know I mean right. I, I yeah. don't want to be too reductionist but I mean that's kind of what I was thinking you know about you know sort of the alternative that he's he's offering with with Satyagraha we can't let ourselves be poisoned by this stuff they can control our bodies they can lock us up but as long as we have this sense of, of truth, as long as we've discovered that, we can't be uh, can't be defeated. Now, is he successful? Is I think a big a big question. Um, he's successful in the sense, and even his worst detractors will will admit this. 
He's successful in that he takes this movement, which, as I said earlier, was not particularly, um, uh, you know, widely participated in. He turns it into a mass movement. Um, but is he successful in getting people to follow this path of nonviolence? You know, one of the biggest moments in his career is, is after that destruction of the police precinct that I talked about earlier in 1922. At that moment, he's, he's just getting ready to engage in this massive movement of civil disobedience. It's going to rock all of India. That's the plan. And when he hears that this, this uh, police station has been burned down, all these people have been killed, he essentially steps back. He begins to fast. He fasts for days and just kind of thinks. And when he comes out of his fast, he's, he calls off the movement. He stops. And for a lot of people, this is a turning point. That They say that we are at the cusp here. Hindus and Muslims were getting along for, for the moment. We had this mass movement. People were ready to act. And then Gandhi betrayed us. Gandhi stepped down at this moment when we could have made real change. And this is where, you know, uh, communists say that, um, you know, that his movement falls apart. This is where they say that his fear was that uh, property was going to get destroyed and, and that wouldn't serve the bourgeois that were his... Uh, you know, his backers and this kind of stuff. But what really becomes clear after reading Gandhi, who's very open and honest about his own faults, by the way, and this is another contradiction, is that he's called Mahatma. I'm sure you've heard that term, Mahatma Gandhi. And that means, you know, something like the, you know, this, the holy one or some, it's like a, a, almost a saintly title. And he hates the title because he doesn't see himself as a saint. He sees himself as an intensely flawed individual. In the end, then, he steps back from this movement, not because, you know, he wants to serve the interests of the bourgeois, but because he's, he's fearful. Right? The fear is that he's created a movement he can't control. That if he unleashes these forces, then he won't be able to stop the violence that comes out of those forces. And that's why he's so focused on the individual aspect of this movement. That we've got to essentially, again, free ourselves before we can ever fully um, take on this structure of power that exists. Um, and again, this is why people are so frustrated with him. Because everything needs to be perfect. It's such hard work to do what he wants to do to talk about people who's most influenced by Martin Luther King, same idea, that the nonviolence they're calling for is hard work, right? There's something cathartic, I think, about violence, particularly when violence has been done to you for so long. To react to violence with violence feels right. It feels like you're getting revenge. But both Gandhi and, and MLK both see that as, a, as a, a devil's bargain, that yes, you can get the government to fear you if you engage with vi in, in violence, uh, but you're also twisting yourself. You're also degrading yourself. You're creating something that you can't control. The thing, the thing also you get from reading a lot of Gandhi is it ultimately is a tragic story. And it's a tragic story, not to spoil this. If you want to see the movie, go see the movie. But um, I guess just get four or 30 seconds if you don't want to know how it ends. Um, it's a tragic story. He is assassinated eventually. Um, he's 78 years old. So it's not like he's cut down the prime of his life, certainly. But, but he's assassinated eventually. And he's assassinated. He's not killed ultimately by the British authorities trying to hold on to their their colony. He's not assassinated by, by Muslims who are fighting back against the idea of unified India. He's killed by right-wing Hindus, essentially, by conservative Hindus. Um, there's this great quote by really one of his, his greatest uh, critics, B.R. Amdekar, and he takes this in, in two, two questions, basically. First question he's asked, why did the Brahmins make Gandhi Mahatma? So the Brahmins being the highest caste in Indian society. So why did they essentially turn him into a saint? And he says, Comrade Gandhi proclaimed, one, I am a conservative Hindu. Two, I believe in the prescriptions of the Vedas and the epics. Three, I believe in the various incarnations of God. Four, I believe in the Varna uh, Shrama Dharma as laid down in the Vedic texts. Five, I believe in worshiping these idols. 
He also acted in, in accordance with these beliefs. Therefore, he was made a Mahatma. So essentially, Amdakar is saying they, they revered him because he was this uh, doctrinary Hindu, right? At least that's how he's presented himself. Why did the Brahmins assassinate him? This is the second question, because he's ultimately killed by, as I said, these right-wing Hindus. He came to say that, one, I don't believe that something like the traditional concept of God exists. Two, there is no truth exclusive to Hinduism. Three, both Allah and Ram are the same. Four, it is not the privilege of only Brahmins to be educated. Five, I value the Quran as much as I value the Vedas. Six, the mosque seized by force should be vacated and returned to Muslims. Therefore, he was killed. The tragedy of his life then is not that he's ultimately killed. As I said, he's lived a long, productive life. Uh, one of his, his uh, greatest supporters, one of his greatest friends, this poet, uh, Sarojini Naidu, uh, uh, the, the, she's called the Nightingale of, of India because of her poetry. Uh, she says, this is the best way for him to go out. You can't imagine Gandhi dying you know, in his sleep of some like <laughs> liver disease and like that. He had to go like this. It's the only death that was appropriate for somebody like him. The tragedy then is not that he was assassinated. It's that ultimately what that assassinated show, assassination showed is that his life work ultimately didn't win out. Right? That the nonviolence that he preached, the nonviolence that was supposed to be at the center of Indian nationalism, instead curdled into this nationalist feeling, this cultural nationalist feeling, this racial feeling that, for instance, only Hindus are correct and Muslims are the enemy. Right? That India cannot exist with different communities. It has to exist and serve one community. Um, that violence ultimately is the path, that that's how we solve our problems. And so for all his rhetoric about peace, for all the credit he's given for the independence of India, he's literally called you know, the father of India, um, the India that emerges, emerges as a fundamentally violent place um, and one that he increasingly by the end of his life felt less and less comfortable with. Um, when India achieves its independence, for instance, he doesn't even go to the celebration. He's so torn up by what his movement has become and what his people have become that he essentially opts out of this. Um, so is he successful? I mean, successful in the sense that MLK sees him as an example and follows his, his lead. Ho Chi Minh, who I, who I mentioned earlier, the great Vietnamese revolutionary says, I and others may be revolutionaries, but we are disciples of Mahatma Gandhi, directly or indirectly, nothing more, nothing less. So maybe he's an example of somebody who's, whose vision is what's uh, most important rather than the actual outcome of that vision, which is I've you know, kind of been struggling with over the last three, four, five days is a very ambiguous one, one that's very hard to track, hard to trace, and hard to, to make sense of. It's such a big story. Um, there's a lot to get your mind around. You've relayed, you know, so many of the, the key points. I think, you know, what I was thinking as you were talking about it is this idea of satyagraha, you know, that, that Gandhi espoused, that you discipline your mind, you know, to understand truth, and, you know, we call it soul force, what have you, uh, you know, in Foucault's terms, look, you know, he's going to say that these these systems of power use discipline and, and obedience of both the body and the mind. And mm -hmm. we saw, you know, Gandhi being subject to the discipline of the body. The, the, you know, he was sentenced to prison and, you know, incarcerated, what have you. But the, the you know, the, the violence, when, when violence becomes an instrumentality of that system of power and it's used to discipline the, the body, in effect... Uh, it still leaves this question then of, uh, you know, how we think and how we perceive. And and I have to tell you, and I don't know if I'm making sense here exactly, Josh, but it's okay because we're working our way through this, is that 
the the frustration I get with the New York Times has has everything to do with that disciplining of the mind. I mean, the, the thing we started with today with Trump's, you know, absurd Fourth of July recitation of American, what is supposed to be American history, you know, a thinly veiled, self-congratulatory white supremacist story of of power that the unfortunate and the reason we started this podcast, you know, one of the reasons was, you know, I started episode one, right? Let's take down the U.S. History Survey is that 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 story has disciplined our minds in all the wrong ways uh, that Gandhi, I think, would have understood because even the New York Times uh, operating under the rubric of that national story of consensus and progress and liberalism can't even come to terms with something right there in plain sight, the repeated instances of violence used in a system of punishment and power and discipline uh, against black people's bodies, uh, because it somehow just doesn't square with that narrative, you know. And so what I'm totally feeling now is, as you've, you've taken us through Gandhi, is that once again, we're not wrong in thinking that we must discipline our minds. And, and, one, and one of the ways we do it, the stories we tell, the narratives we tell, you know, and uh, if we're going to tell the story of violence the way the New York Times seems to want to, let alone Donald Trump, then we haven't made any progress toward ultimately fixing or replacing or reforming even, you know, that fundamental um, problem which exists all around us still as, as a system of power. And, and next week, you know, we'll look at it in its other manifestations. But, uh, no, I appreciate, partner, you taking us through that uh, ambivalency and ambiguity, even in the story of Gandhi himself, you know, where there seems to be a contrary or, um, you know, difficult uh, things to bridge in his personality or, or what have you. Um, because that's what we're, that's, that's essentially what what we're facing, I think, now, don't you? Yeah, and you know, I think really the end, the question then becomes, you know, can violence successfully defeat violence? Uh, can nonviolence actually overthrow and create a new system? Uh, do either of them work? And what does it mean to work? Right? Because as Gandhi himself says, "quote It is perfectly true they use brute force, and it is possible for us to do likewise. But by using similar means, we can only get the same thing that they got." So where are we left now? Like, what is the appropriate response to these systems of power, these systems of violence against us? Um, you know, part of the problem is what you would want to do is look in, back into history and find, you know, examples that that are that can make sense of this. But I don't think we really have great examples of that, right? Do we have examples where, you know, a movement of nonviolence has succeeded and overthrown a movement of violence? Hmm. Not many, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as I was just suggesting with the Gandhi story, his movement is based on nonviolence, but ultimately Indian independence doesn't come from nonviolence in many ways. There's a lot of examples of violent revolutions overthrowing violent systems. But as we've talked about, what do those violent revolutions often then turn into? Yeah, equally repressive and, and violent regimes. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, and you look at like somebody like Martin Luther King, you know, who is a, in effect, a student now of Gandhi and in the 1950s and 60s and confronting Southern white segregationist power uh, systems that freely utilized violence as a disciplining feature. Uh, and you could say, well, you know, King's movement in the South um, was, you know, to a great measure successful in that you see the, the desegregating, you know, of 
of schools, although that process had already begun, uh, the desegregating of, of Southern life in many respects, public facilities across the board. Uh, but when King gets to the North, right, and, and he goes to Chicago and takes his movement to Chicago, it's an utter failure. And it leaves King, mm-hmm. you know, completely frustrated and, and on the verge of being demoralized, I think. And it's that point that he takes up his, uh, you know, his anti-war advocacy, which really alienated him from a lot of the other liberal civil rights people, because they said, now you're taking on patriotism, you're going to be marginalized in doing that. But I think what King understood, what Gandhi understood, and what I was getting from what you talked about today is, well, you know, um, if you know, you, you can sharpen a knife against another knife, but what you end up with is, is a sharper knife, a piece of violence, yep. you know, unless you discipline your mind. And, and as King was trying to say with Vietnam, and, and understand in the context of a system completely awash in violence, completely steeped, a world steeped in violence, that you're never going to operate outside the rubric of that violence um, intellectually mm-hmm. and emotionally, you know. And so disciplining the mind to imagine, you know, another system, a different kind of system that is not predicated so starkly as the United States has been, uh, as these colonial regimes were on the active use of that kind of physical violence against the body that... uh, I think I think maybe what we're saying, uh, partner, is is that Gandhi was right in a basic way, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that if what you're looking for is ultimately not just victory over a regime, but resolution of this larger problem of living in a world steeped in violence. That's a perfect way to end it. We are going to continue to talk about this stuff, though. This is not the end of this conversation by any means, but we're going to push it off till next week to continue our discussion of violence and nonviolence resistance and power. See you next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening.